You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. I say this in all seriousness. Do you know what I love about this community? You're going to do what you're going to do, and it doesn't matter what I say. (laughs) And I mean that quite sincerely, because you know what? That's a family, right? That's a family, you know? Um, I I love seeing us just take time to talk. And and what I would just encourage, and I know it happens, is after the service, especially because we don't always come together as two services, don't just rush away. Take an opportunity to just extend the conversation that you started Many of you saw people that you haven't seen in a while. Maybe you've met someone for the first time. Let's let, let's let that continue just beyond the few minutes that we take in the service. I'd like to invite you at this time to open up your Bibles. Bible you brought with you, Bible that's there in the pew, that's yours if you need one to keep, to take with you. Or if you're using your phone or a tablet to use the YouVersion Bible app, the instructions are on the screen, and you're opening up to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. If if someone asked you to tell him or her the Christmas story, you'd probably turn to the Gospel of Matthew or Luke. I mean, taken together, these the details in the first chapters of these two books define the key elements that we find in our crutches and our Christmas pageants. You know, the not yet married couple of Mary and Joseph about to give birth to a baby, angels announcing this good news to shepherds watching their flocks by night. A manger that becomes a makeshift crib, a unique star in the sky that a tandem of stargazers, astrologers from foreign lands follow in order to to bring gifts to this newborn child, gifts that are fit for a king. This Christmas story, according to Matthew and Luke, is what people will expect to hear when they come to worship with us next week on Christmas Eve. What people wouldn't be prepared to hear probably aren't even aware of, is the other version of the Christmas story. In this other version, Jesus is, of course, present. Mary is there, too. There is some mention given of angels. More than one star is radiantly on display. But there is no talk of shepherds or wise men. Instead, a new figure is introduced, One not found in any of our nativity scenes, an enormous and menacing red dragon. When was the last time you saw one of those in the annual Christmas play? (laughs) Be cool, right? Man, gotta do that. This retelling of the birth of Jesus is found in all places in the book of Revelation. John, one of the original disciples of Jesus, is the writer of this book. And a little background, John emerged as a leader in the church, the early church, especially among the churches in Asia Minor, what we know of today as the nation of Turkey. When the Roman Empire turned hostile to Christianity, it tried to exterminate it as a movement. And one of the first moves it made was to get rid of the leaders of the church. And so John found himself exiled to the island of Patmos. And in that moment, he found himself powerless, powerless to do anything for those he had pastored. He had led to Christ as a devastating persecution began for the followers of Jesus. John was helpless until one day he received a monumental vision from the Lord. 
And what John sees, he's told to share with others in the midst of trying and discouraging times to give the faithful another perspective, the bigger picture of what is happening around them and what is still to come. Part of this epic vision given to John, recorded here in chapter 12, I hope you found it, is a heavenly flashback to an event that occurred some 80 years before he received this revelation. It's our opportunity to experience Christmas from the perspective of eternity. So if you've got your Bibles open, hear from Revelation chapter 12, starting in verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up by God to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, the ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now here have come the salvation and power, the kingdom of our God, and the authority of his Messiah. The accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and to the sea. Because the devil has gone down to you, he is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Don't close those Bibles. Trust me, you're going to want to keep them open. I want to keep them open right there. Now, I'm going to give you my preamble that I always do because reading Revelation can be challenging. It's why we're going to study it on Wednesdays coming up in January. But when you just try to read it, uh, outside of a sermon series, unless you, t you really take the time, just like a one and done like this, it can be challenging because there's a mixture of several, diff several different types of writing that make up Revelation. There's letter, there's a, uh, it's written in the form of a letter, there's history, there's prophecy, there's poetry. All these different genres come together to form a unique type of writing called apocalyptic literature. And that's what Revelation is. It's what's called apocalyptic literature. And rather than get into an intricate definition of that, what I'll tell you is the most distinctive feature of apocalyptic literature is its reliance upon the visual. In trying to capture and convey the things of heaven, an eternal rather than a linear perspective, large amounts of images and symbols are used. Most of these images and symbols are drawn from the Old Testament. Indeed, there really is no understanding Revelation without knowing the Old Testament. For me, and I hope this helps you, a great way of understanding or a great way of thinking about this intimidating and often confusing part of the Bible is to think of it as a picture book. More specifically, what I'm thinking of when I say that is one of those magic uh, 3D eye puzzle books. You know what I'm talking about? 
Remember the magic 3DI puzzle books where you stare at this seemingly chaotic image, right? As a whole, you look dead center, and then you slowly pull back and you see the picture revealed within. Did anyone else get driven nuts by those? Okay, it's not just me. I was, oh, you'd always be with people like, oh, I totally see it. I don't see anything. I don't see, I don't see anything. I don't see anything. Revelation's kind of like that, okay? Um, it's, it's this, it can look very chaotic. It can look very, very confusing. But as we look at it and as we slowly pull back, we can see the picture that's there for us to see. And so that's what I want to do this morning. What I want to do is I want to slowly pull back on this picture given to us in Revelation chapter 12 so that we can appreciate the vision that's being given here. And what I'm, I want you to, just to set you up right from the outset, I want to tell you what we're, in the end what we're going to see. Through this picture of Christmas from the other side, through the lens of Revelation, the picture within the picture that God gives us to see is one of hope. That's the word to hold on to. It's hope. What we're going to see is hope is eternal. We're going to see hope is in Christ alone. And we're going to see that hope is a choice. Hope is eternal. Hope is in Christ alone. And hope is a choice. So, Hope is eternal. Let's start there. And let's start there by looking at the picture and pulling back. The vision opens with John seeing a great and wondrous sign in heaven, a woman who is about to give birth. Who is she? For generations, Christians have debated exactly who this woman is. And and what I want to say is remember this vision given to John is an eternal one. Remember what Revelation is. It's a timeless perspective that's being framed through our comprehension our understanding of the past, the present, and the future. So what that means is what we see in Revelation often has multiple points of reference. It's not always about a single answer. So with that set up, who is this? And what I'll say to you is it's Mary, the mother of the Messiah, the birth mother of Jesus, but it's also more than Mary. First, you might notice, if your Bible's still open, that John never gives her a name. He simply refers to her as a woman. And this is important because in one sense, this woman goes all the way back to Eve, the mother of the human race. Do we remember? We went through the story. We just ended in November. We spent a year going through the story. Do we we remember God's very first promise to send a Savior for us came in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when the Lord foretold of a future descendant of Eve who would crush the head of the serpent would crush the head of sin, evil, and death, and thereby reverse the effects of our rebellion and separation from him, our heavenly father. The woman of this promise, this descendant of Eve, eventually became Sarah, the wife of Abraham, who gave birth to Isaac, the first child of a new nation to be called Israel. And repeatedly, this is interesting, isn't it? The nation of Israel is portrayed in relationship to God as a woman, especially through prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Micah. Whenever Israel worshipped false gods, think about this, her idolatry was called out as adultery. Israel, my wife, is unfaithful to me, the Lord would cry out. And in contrast, being faithful to God is represented as being a pure woman. Indeed, one of the central promises of the Messiah that lays the groundwork for Christmas builds on this theme from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, God with us. From the seed of the pure woman, the people of God, the Messiah, would come. Mary is this woman, 
the virgin, a pure woman by the grace of God, the grace that gives her the faith to say yes to the Lord's plan for her. The woman pictured here, you'll notice, by John, has a crown of victory on her head, a crown, we're told, of 12 stars. On the one hand, these 12 stars stand for the 12 tribes of Israel. Mary, in other words, through her pregnancy, embodies Israel. She is an Israelite. She is the Israelite who is giving birth to the true Israel, the long-awaited, long-promised Messiah of her people. Mary giving birth is in many ways the penultimate in a chain of births going back to the fulfillment of a promise made to Israel for the world that goes, like I said, all the way back to Eve. Eve giving birth to Seth, Sarah giving birth to Isaac, Rebecca giving birth to Jacob, Rachel giving birth to Benjamin, Jochebed giving birth to Moses, Hannah giving birth to Samuel, and so on, and so on, until it leads to Mary giving birth to Jesus. This, by the way, is why we have those annoying genealogies that most of us skip over in Matthew and Luke. To underscore, to show us Jesus born of Mary is physically descended from those he came to save. So Mary embodies Israel. But Mary also, if you were reading carefully, also embodies the church. We didn't read this part, but if you have those Bibles open, go down to verse 17. And the mother of the Messiah, this woman, is described as having offspring. And those offspring are namely those who keep the commandments of God and bear testimony to Jesus. In other words, the offspring are those who believe and follow Jesus. The offspring is the church, the church in all places, in all times. So on the other hand, that stars, the stars of her crown of victory, not only signify the patriarchs of the Old Testament, the 12 patriarchs, right? Or the 12 tribes, excuse me, of the Old Testament, but it also symbolizes the 12 apostles, the first leaders of the New Testament. And it's interesting that the church, like Israel, is described in feminine terms as the bride of Christ. The church is described, like Mary, as bearing Jesus into and for the world. So, as we first pull back, what we see is this picture gives some eternal significance to Mary. She was the particular woman who gave birth to the Savior of the world, but she also embodies in that particularity Israel as the womb of God's promise going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, and she reflects the church as the bearer and deliverer of Christ into the present and the future. So, first thing there, we're seeing that, that part of the picture, and if we pause here for a moment, what I think we are meant to see in this, viewing Christmas from the other side, the perspective of heaven, is as I said, our hope is eternal. Here we see in the birth of Christ that it was not some isolated religious event we only celebrate once a year. The birth of Christ is the decisive moment of an eternal plan, an eternal drama. It's not the dawn of a new hope, but an old one, going all the way back to the beginning of time. The coming of our Messiah wasn't first conceived with Mary, it was conceived in the Garden of Eden. It is the hope of victory that continued to be revealed and witnessed throughout the history of Israel. Sin, evil, and death take their best shots at Israel. But Israel, despite the odds, right? Despite all the opposition, by the grace of God, endures. That's the backstory of Christmas. The revelation of hope stretching throughout history and ultimately pointing us forward to Jesus. Our hope is eternal. And our hope is eternal because our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in Christ. 
This woman in this vision, as we're told, is about to give birth to a child, the Christ child. But before we say more about the child, let's turn our attention to the dragon. Fiery and fiery red and seven-headed, what John sees is grotesque in its appearance and demeanor. The, seven, the ten horns and seven crowns described as part of this dragon's appearance represent great power and strength. This is a creature to be reckoned with. This is not Puff the Magic Dragon from the folk songs of years of old. This is the Grinch who comes to steal Christmas. The dragon stands in front of this woman who is in labor, we're told, so that he might devour this child the moment it is born. The dragon is what John calls a sign, which means the dragon is a symbol for something else. And in verse 9, John identifies the dragon as a symbol for Satan, the personification of evil. And this image of the dragon representing Satan and the forces of evil is a well-known theme throughout the Bible. It's often used repeatedly to reflect the empires of this world hell-bent to deface or ruin God's creation, to, do, to abuse, to subjugate, and, or destroy humanity. Particularly, though, in the Bible, the dragon represents the corporate and systemic effort of the state to be worshipped by God, to deny the kingdom of God, and in so doing, to seek to snuff out the covenant people of the Lord, Israel, the body of Christ, the church. The dragon, in other words, is the animating force behind every attempt of God's enemies to crush God's people, to cripple and do all that it can to keep every single human being from having a relationship of faith and trust in God. And the attention of this dragon, as we're told, is on the child about to be born. John doesn't give us any details about the physical birth. His readers already knew those details, just like we do. Instead, John sees and lets us see why this child is different, why the birth of a baby would the command the attention of a juggernaut of a dragon. And what John sees, what he lets us see, is this child who was born at Bethlehem, John says, is not a baby, not just a baby. What John sees, he relates back to, some of your Bibles might have this footnote, he relates what he sees of this child back to an image from Psalm 2. A messianic image of one who is a king destined to rule the world with an iron scepter. What child is this? This is the birth of Christ. The Christ of God coming down in person, in the flesh, in order to remove all false pretenders to the throne. It is Jesus, the one who can take up and conquer the challenge of the dragon. The forces of sin, evil, and death that have tried to deny, have tried to usurp, even destroy the coming, the arrival of the rightful king. Long has this dragon waged war against this promised savior. Be it an Egyptian pharaoh or a Persian king, a Persian uh, royalty named Haman, both of whom attempt to annihilate the seed of the promise, the people of Israel. Or a puppet king named Herod, who once he learned of the birth of Jesus, ordered a bloodthirsty, genocidal response that all the newly born sons of Bethlehem be put to death. This dragon has repeatedly attempted and unsuccessfully been able to devour this child. All of these efforts ultimately lead this child, become man, the son of God, to be mockingly crucified as a king by the greatest empire in the world at the time. Through the Roman Empire, the forces of sin, evil, and death, through everything they had, ridicule, rejection, abuse, agony, even death itself, 
But once again, from the cross, what looks like apparent defeat for the promise becomes through a stone that is rolled away and a tomb that is empty, once and for all, the certain irresistible victory of the king. Notice in your Bibles at the end of verse 5, this is very interesting to me, how in this picture, what John sees skips from the birth of Jesus Christ to his ascension. It goes from the birth to his ascension, his return to heaven after his death and resurrection. What John is doing here in bracketing Christ is bracketing Christ's entire life together, right? He's from beginning to end, and it's a way of representing, of presenting the life of Jesus as the comprehensive work of our redemption and salvation. And John, just so we don't miss this, is, is sees and includes for us what follows next. And it's this picture of a dra the dragon and all its forces being taken down in defeat. The song of heaven that we read that follows in verses 10 through 12 proclaims the victory of the one who demonstrates there is no game of thrones. There is only one throne. And it is God alone who sits on it. Christ the Lord. Beloved, our hope is eternal because Jesus wins. Jesus wins, not just as the king of the Jews, the rightful heir to King David's throne in Israel, but as the king of kings, the rightful ruler and creator of the entire universe. In fact, the word translated rule in verse five is from the verb to shepherd. And this is, does not surprise us because Jesus as king is also presented to us as the shepherd, the good shepherd, the true shepherd of the nations, leading and guiding all to freedom, unity and peace through the strength of his justice and compassion and the power of his love. My friends, what we see when we pull back from this picture is our hope is eternal because our hope is in Christ. Jesus doesn't just come to save Israel or even those who believe him. Jesus comes to save the world. Christmas, in other words, is a wake-up call in the midst of all of our superficial and generic talk of working together to save ourselves, working together to bring peace on earth. Christmas from the other side is a wake-up call that our hope is in Christ alone. Salvation is found nowhere else. Salvation is found in no one else. While we can and should respect other religious beliefs, please hear me say that, we can and should respect other religious beliefs, while we can and we will have political differences and they need not cause us to be inseparably divided from each other, Jesus is the only one who can save us. Every other belief system or spiritual guru, every other political party or leader will always be imperfect, will always be inadequate, will always be found wanting. Only Christ can defeat the dragon, the forces of sin, evil, and death. Our hope is eternal, but our hope is eternal because our hope is in Christ alone. But what we also see as we look at this picture, as we pull back, that this hope that's eternal, this hope that's in Christ alone, this story of salvation continues, and it includes us. In other words, hope is also a choice. Hope is eternal, hope is in Christ alone, but hope is a choice. When Jesus ascended into heaven in the sight of his followers, he promised to return again, but in the meantime, he sent them and us. He filled them and us with the authority and power of his Holy Spirit, 
so that we would share and extend his victory to every square inch of creation. In other words, the view from the other side shows us the first Christmas, the first coming of Jesus, leads to the last Christmas, the second coming of Christ. And we can't overlook how this vision continues in chapter 12. Look at verse 17. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That offspring is you and me, the church. That offspring, once again, is all who follow Jesus. The dragon, sin, evil, and death have been vanquished, but the battle still rages on. The world is still in conflict, even though the war has been won. Not everyone has heard, not everyone has seen the good news of Jesus Christ. The dragon is mortally wounded, but still has its teeth. The enemy's time is short, but the forces of evil, sin and death, purpose to obstruct, to trap, to take as many as they can from the kingdom of God through lies and accusation, the seductions of greed, lust and hatred, and the spread of violence and apathy. My friends, the reason the Lord gives John, gives us a glimpse at these spiritual forces at work during this time in which we live, is so we will know what is really going on. So we will not be ignorant about what is happening, but also so we will be prepared and engaged with what comes next. So we will have hope. Hope. You know, there's lots of things that can be hard for us to perceive, lots of things that can be hard for us to see. And for some of us, hope is one of those things. It's a lot like those magic 3D art pictures I mentioned earlier. Some of us look, we look for a long time, but we can't visualize the image that's supposedly there. All we see is a mess of color, a bunch of chaos. Hope? We're just not seeing it. I mean, it's Christmas time, but our days are anything but merry and bright. We look around and we don't feel or see any light coming in, only the darkness that surrounds us. All that's in our field of vision is the ongoing illness we just have to keep managing. All that's in our field of vision is yet another setback, major setback that we just got to work through. All that's in our line of sight is the grief that continues to overwhelm us. We think we're better, but we're not. It just continues to come over us, wave after crashing wave. All that's in our line of sight maybe is the wound, the hurt in that relationship that just won't heal. We've tried to move on. We've tried to get past it. We've tried to just let it lie, but we can't. It hurts. It aches. And that's all we can see. All that's right before our eyes is the stress, you know, the confusion, the uncertainty about that decision we need to make. Or maybe all that's right before our eyes is that lingering, haunting awareness that we, we just don't have the strength. We just don't have the courage. We just don't have the will to make that change in our lives. To get out of that situation. To stop coming back to that place. To let go of that attitude, that habit, that addiction that keeps tripping us up. Hope is a choice. Hope is a choice. I want you to hear this this morning. And for some of you, you need to hear this this morning. There is hope for you in Christ. 
an eternal one. In this life, we will have trouble. Jesus was very painfully upfront about that. When we become a Christian, we don't step into a magic circle. And for many of us, we got a bait and switch when we came to the faith. That's what the picture we were given. But the picture that we see here, the picture that Jesus paints for us, is ultimately victory, but not without pain, not without struggle. The words reverberate again and again. One of the most profound things that Jesus says is, I have died for you. I have conquered death for you. But in order for you to embrace all that I have for for you, you have to die to yourself. You have to die to this world. You have to die to the old way of thinking, the old way of doing. And death isn't easy. Hope is a choice. Our lives have been saved by Christ, but we continue to exist in a broken world. The troubles, the sufferings, and pain of this life that we all encounter are the reflection of a creation that's still divided, in the midst of being redeemed, but not yet made whole. And we can hear that, we can see that, and we can still choose to perceive these struggles, these troubles, even failure, as hopelessly defining our lives and sealing our fates. We can choose to remain fixated on our discomfort, our pain and our fear, letting doubt and anxiety and bitterness overtake us. Or we can choose to receive the eternal hope we have in Christ. We can choose to believe. We can choose to trust, to know that no matter what happens, Even death itself, we will not be destroyed. We will not be defeated. We will win. Hope is a choice. Christmas is about the eternal hope we are given in Christ alone. We need this hope. But receiving it, living out of it, my friends, is a choice. In all the tension and unrest, globally, locally, personally, we find hope. This hope that I speak of, this hope that John sees, we find this hope by looking unto Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith. When Christmas is chaotic, when Christmas is lonely, when Christmas is sad, when everything is going badly, we experience hope as we walk the way of Jesus, following him, trusting his continual presence with us through his word and by his spirit, trusting his continual presence to lead us and carry us home. But we must choose. Hear that this morning. We must choose. Hope is a choice. If we choose hope, if we choose to see and receive the eternal hope we have in Christ, we will gain a balanced and realistic framework for understanding all of history. Some of us are very cynical about history. Some of us are very uh, pessimistic about history. But if we receive the eternal hope we have in Christ, it can change how we understand history, what has been, what is, and what will be. If we choose to have this hope, to receive this eternal hope we have in Christ, it also can change. It gives us a balanced and realistic framework for viewing our own lives our delights and our sorrows, our victories and our losses. 
Before temptation, before persecution, before suffering, even death itself, we can become more than conquerors in Christ, not by striking back with evil ourselves, not by adding to the hate, the cynicism, the pessimism, the violence of this world, not by striking back with evil ourselves, but by trusting in the authority and power of Jesus, our King, to finish what he started in and through us. Nothing can be taken away from us that the Lord cannot redeem, that the Lord cannot reconcile, that the Lord cannot restore or resurrect. Do you have that hope? No weapon can ultimately stand against us. No lie will ever endure the truth of eternity. Do you have, have you received that hope? Our eternal hope in Christ is our foundation for being joyful in the midst of suffering, peaceful in the midst of chaos, and having that deep, unshakable confidence even in the thick of the worst sort of problems. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you know the flavor of this confidence of which I speak? It's the confidence that comes out of this eternal hope in Christ that all things work together for the good of those who love God. It's the confidence that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's the confidence that this present suffering is not worthy to be compared to the glory being revealed to us in Christ. It is the confidence that nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Do you have this hope? Hope is a choice. And it is crucial for us to receive the eternal hope we have in Christ alone, not just for ourselves, but also because we as the body of Christ, hear this, we as the body of Christ, as John sees it, and we get to see it, we as the body of Christ are simultaneously the primary targets of attack and also the first and only line of defense in this battle. We are the primary targets of attack and at the same time, we are the first and only line of defense in this battle. We have to receive this hope that we have in Christ, this eternal hope, because once we are emboldened by this confidence of faith, believing that nothing can harm us in any permanent or lasting way, what will happen is we will no longer worry for ourselves, but we will find ourselves free. We will find ourselves alive, empowered to intervene in, on behalf of others. Those who do not know, those who have not heard. Many of you come to me all the time and struggle with evangelism, right? Man, I just don't know how to share my faith. I just don't know how to tell people to introduce them to Jesus. Might I suggest that the reason that you're struggling is you haven't received the hope you have in Christ. If you're not hopeful, hopeful in Christ, then of course, you don't have nothing to share. You don't know what to say. You don't know how to put it into words. What could you possibly say? It feels fake. It feels shallow. It feels awkward. But when you have embraced, when you have received the hope, the knowledge that God is for you and with you, that Christ is present, that he has given you his word and his word can get inside you, can guide you, can give you wisdom and direction, encouragement, Conviction that this word can in, 
wake you up, open your eyes, and help you to see, when you realize that you have this eternal hope in Christ, that Christ has deposited his spirit in you, yes, you don't have the will. Yes, you don't have the strength. Yes, you don't have the courage. I don't on our own, but the Spirit of the Lord is upon us. And if the Spirit of the Lord is upon you, you can do, you can become more than you can possibly hope for or even imagine. When you receive this eternal hope, suddenly you're not looking at yourself. You're seeing others. And we need to embrace this eternal hope we have in Christ alone because we need to intervene for those who do not know, who truly don't know, who haven't heard. If the world seems upside down to you, if you sit here today and this, this is hitting a nerve, you are cynical, you are pessimistic, you complain, you are argumentative all the time, any, take any topic, we can go down the list. Seems like everything everybody's upset about. If the world seems upside down, if the darkness appears greater than the light, fight back. Fight back not with more violence. Fight back not with more cynicism. Fight back not with more snarkiness, passive aggressiveness. Fight back with hope. Fight back with hope and we extend this hope, this eternal hope we have in Christ alone when we share Jesus when we offer, when we reflect the mercy, the love, the grace and truth of Jesus by serving others. My friends, the Great Commission is our marching orders. The Great Commission is our marching orders to bring the light of Christ into the darkness. The call for us to make disciples is not an optional extra not just because, well, God really wants to grow his church. The call for discipleship is not an optional extra because the call for discipleship is God's call to bring salvation into the world. It's not about, oh, well, we just need to have more people. No, it's about God wants that all should be saved, that all would hear and know, that all would receive this hope, this eternal hope we have in Christ. Through the gift of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, by the revelation of the word of God, we have been armed. We have been armed and we are ready to protect and serve, to conquer hate with love, to conquer violence with peace, to conquer vengeance with mercy, and by all means to conquer death with life in a world that is just plagued by all of those other things, hate, violence, vengeance, and death. Fight back. Fight back with hope. Hope, it's a powerful word. With hope comes encouragement and the desire to persevere. But a life without hope is a life of defeat, a life of doubt, a life of dread. You look around, you look at your neighbor, you look at strangers and you're upset. You don't understand why they act the way they do, they live the way they do. Let me tell you, the answer is they have no hope. They have no hope. Instead of shoving Jesus in their face, adding to their guilt and shame, letting them know the fires of hell are waiting for them. You're gonna get yours. 
Turn to your brothers and sisters, strangers, neighbors, people you don't know, and instead extend to them hope. Not just for a holly jolly Christmas or a marshmallow world in the wintertime. <laughs> but the hope that is eternal of a God who from the very beginning set a plan in motion, brought it to fruition, came down himself to take back everything, including them, including you. A life without hope is a life of defeat, doubt, and dread. A life with hope brings encouragement and the desire to persevere. Which life would you rather choose? The, God, the life God wants you to have. The life God came down in Jesus to give you at Christmas is one of hope. Be hopeful, not hopeless. Be hopeful, not hopeless. We like to tell ourselves, we'll say this next week, so this is going to be ironic, that it was a silent night when Christ was born. We'll sing next week, all was calm, all was bright. But as the curtain has been pulled back for us today, as the curtain was pulled back from John, we get to see that the birth of Jesus was anything but calm and bright. It was the turning point in a battle. It was the turning point in a battle that started the second we hid naked and afraid from God. It was the turning point of a battle that was finished on the cross at Calvary. It was the turning point of a battle that will be fully realized when the risen Christ returns to make all things new. We may never see this view from the other side on our Christmas cards. We may never add that fiery red dragon to our manger scenes. But we can choose to see it here. We can choose to see it here. We can choose to see it now. We can choose to see it today. Because getting behind the scenes of the nativity helps us to realize Christmas does indeed fulfill our greatest need and desire. It does indeed fulfill our greatest need and desire, not for something on Santa's list, but for something written in the book of life. The gift of hope. The hope of forgiveness. The hope of salvation. The hope of healing. The hope of the life still to come. Our eternal hope in Christ alone. Amen.